Hello and welcome to the 55th episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. Tonight we have Ron Mikulski, producer, movie critic, and author. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, Ron. Hello, Adam. How are you? Oh, pretty good. The skies are gray and it's kind of chilly here. It's late cozy. fall, early winter, so it's it's okay if it's that way. You are here to discuss your book. Yes, I just uh, published a children's book. In fact, here's the uh, cover. It's available on Amazon, and it's called "We Don't Feel Like It," and it's the story of Mickey and Beady who wake up one day and don't feel like going to school. And a lot of people that I've told this uh, book about in the title, they all laugh and they go, "Yeah, I don't feel like going to work today either." So everybody, you know, they do things for a living, whether it's going to school or going to college or going to high school or going to part-time work, full-time work. And sometimes they wake up and they just don't feel like it. But in the story, I explain that if you don't feel like it, you still have to do things because if nobody felt like it and everybody stayed home, nothing would get done. So that's basically the moral of the story. Have you ever had those days yourself, Adam? Of course. Right. Well, for example, I mean, you know, you've done this podcast now for over four years. So what motivated you to finally get up and do it? I was talking to a friend of mine. I'd done a little bit of narration work, and he wanted to promote his comic book company. He said, why don't you start a podcast? Right. (laughs) So was that easy? Yeah, and I consider it uh, more enjoyable work than most, but you know, everything eventually becomes a job. I still, you know, when I record something, I have to edit it, right. I have to polish it. Uh, and, and you do this every single week or every single day? How often do you do it? For uh, a variety of reasons, I took considerable period of time off last year but now that i'm back at it yeah i try to get someone on every nine to ten days or so sometimes it's hard to hook certain people yeah wow that's that's what i think is so great about um someone like yourself and someone like me that you know as i tell other people anybody can have an idea anybody can sit there and think of something but if you don't get up and be proactive and actually do it and accomplish it, it's just going to be an idea. It's just going to sit in your head. So until you actually get out and do it, you'll find out whether you're good or not, whether you like it or not, and whether you want to continue or not. So for the fact that you actually did it, got it going, you know, that's, that's good for you. Now, what about this guy that you said four years ago he had a comic book thing? What, what, where is he now? Is he still doing comic books? It's a it's a tough industry, but he's still plugging away. He's an extremely passionate, dedicated guy with incredible knowledge. Well, that's great. You know, I moved out to California when I was younger, and I was out there for three years. And the first apartment building I went to, I think it was like around 79, 78, something like that. There was a guy across the hall, an artist, real nice guy. And once in a while, he'd invite me in, and he had thousands of drawings of Star Wars, thousands. 
And, you know, and I thought it was great and wonderful. And I just said, but it's over. Star Wars is over. Nobody cares anymore. It was, you know, a couple movies and that was it. Little did I know that it really was just the beginning. Um, I don't know what happened to the guy, but, you know, it's funny how somebody has a hobby or somebody has an interest and they do something and they just stick with it. And then I guess eventually time comes around and, and you can get things done. Are you a Star Wars fan? I was born on <laughs> on May 4th, but no. Okay. I, I've never seen the movie, so I don't dislike it. I, right. I just don't know it. Yeah, same thing with Star Trek, Star Wars. I I mean, I was familiar with Star Trek more because it was on uh, TV, but um, never was a real big fan. I mean, I like science fiction films, but I like I like all different genres of films, uh, movies, uh, musicals, comedies, mysteries. Uh, mysteries are nice because you get to follow the story and then you kind of Try to figure out, you know, how it's done or who did it. And that's interesting to me. You have a certain type of film you like? Uh, I, when I watch TV, usually it's a quick cartoon. Although, as far as mysteries go, I liked Poirot a lot, but I finished that series a long time ago. Right. Did you see uh, the new remake of Murder on the Orient Express? I didn't. I I just can't imagine anyone but Dave Suchet playing okay. that role. Well, if you ever get a chance to see the original one, I think it was 1970 or 71, Albert Finney does it, and he's, he's amazing. He really is. Hmm. Very well done. But again, you know, you have your favorites. You know, it's funny. Same thing with Sherlock Holmes. You know, when I grew up, there was only one guy, Basil Rathbone, and you can never, never imagine anybody else doing Sherlock Holmes but him. And now there's so many different versions. It's it's amazing. But it's interesting that as time goes by, you will find an actor you like. Uh, I recently got hooked, and I know I'm way, way, way behind everybody else, but I finally got hooked on Doctor Who. Do you ever see that? No. Okay. Do you know about it? Oh, yeah. My sister likes it. Yeah. yeah it's an interesting concept. And I started getting into it because they make this big deal about Doctor Who was finally going to be a woman. So I taped it and liked it. And now I, you know, I have my TV set where I tape Doctor Who whenever it comes on. So once in a while, they'll throw in the older episodes and see somebody else as Doctor Who. But very interesting. Very, very interesting concept. And the most recent, I mean, recently I watched After fake again okay now that's the Orson Welles film right oh yeah mm -hmm. okay. now Orson is my boy I aspire to be every bit as pretentious as he was and <laughs> maybe maybe not as obese but uh... right <laughs> well you know he was a very you know very interesting guy and I guess you could say he just had so much talent and it just it's just Somehow it doesn't always work out. Um, I mean, Touch of Evil is an amazing film. He did some good stuff, um, Third Man. But, yeah, just, you know, th there's another guy I really admire a great deal. Uh, and his name is Boris Karloff. And I don't know if your fans or the audience would know who he was. But he was a guy that worked so hard for so long and just never gave up. 
and finally made it at the age of 44. Imagine being 44, Adam, and not accomplishing anything. And at some point, I'm sure he said, I've just got to give this up. You know, nothing's going to happen. I'm, I'm going to do something other than act. But he didn't. And because he didn't, he then became a star because of the film Frankenstein. He was the monster in the original Universal's 1931 Frankenstein. But now here's the interesting thing in comparing him to Orson Welles. He never stopped working. He constantly did whatever came along and did pretty well at it. Um, so he went from, first he started on stage, then silent films, then sound films. Then radio came along. He did that for a while. Then he went back to uh, stage. He eventually got to Broadway. He did that very well. Then went to live television, did real television, had a recording career. I, it, he just didn't stop. Everything that came along, he took advantage of. And everything he did, he did quite well. He was nominated for a Tony. He won a Grammy. He was one of the founders of the Screen Actors Guild. So... Again, if you compare him to Wells, I mean, he just took advantage of everything that came along and just worked and almost literally worked up to the day he died. Uh, about the week before he died, he did a recording for a radio program. And the other great thing about him is he also did Arsenic and Old Lace. That was a role written for him on Broadway. And then he did, of course, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So... You take a look at those three pinnacles. In film, he was Frankenstein. On stage, he was Arsenic and Old Lace. And on TV, he was How the Grinch Stole Christmas. He was the Grinch. Just a remarkable career. I, I forgot about the Grinch Stole Christmas, but yeah, that is his voice. Yeah. <laughs> that is, you know, it's funny, Adam. You're, again, a lot of people your age, they all do the same thing. As soon as I say the Grinch, they go, oh, yeah, now I know who he is. Here's the great part about Arsenic and Old Lace, and I don't know if you've ever seen that or heard of that play, but they tried to convince him, the uh, producers went and tried to convince him to come to Broadway. And as good as he was, he was also very shy, and he was reluctant. He felt Broadway was, you know, the pinnacle of, of stage acting, and even though he had become a movie star, he, he really didn't know whether he was qualified. But they said, well, I'll tell you the storyline. It's about this murderer gets his face changed and at one point they asked him why did you kill the last guy and he says i killed him because he said i look like boris karloff <laughs> now the only way they get to laugh is if boris karloff is saying the line and so he was hooked from then on he says okay you know what this sounds like and it was a comedy and he had never done comedy before so he stretched his wings took a chance uh Many times in his own mind, wanted to walk out. Didn't feel he was good, but he stayed with it, and it became a huge success. He was one of the very first actors in, in, in all the research I've done to be aware of his image and to take advantage of that and sometimes even make fun of it. But it got him work, and he was very, very grateful for that. It's, it's always fantastic to hear about people like that. And someone like Haydn was worked throughout his life, didn't really have any great success until his 50s. Right. And then there are, are famous painters who never had success during their own lifetime. But then after they died, all of a sudden they became successful. Well, I mean, that's nice, but it's not 
especially inspiring unless you want posthumous fame. Well, here, here, here's where I disagree with um, some actors. Uh, and follow me on this, Adam. It, it may take a while to get to my point, but follow me. <laughs> they, they come on these talk shows. They're famous. They're rich. They have everything they want. And they go, now, nah, I never did it for the fame, never did it for the money. I just wanted to act. And my response is that's BS. And here's why it's BS. If you are good on stage and you want to work again, you have to be very good. So that work then gets you more stage work. Now, if you're good in that, then they're going to want you in film. Now, the only way to get more work in film, you have to be good in that. So you can judge your own career. You, you can do your own path. I mean, if some of these actors say, I want to act just to act, well, then fine. Stay off Broadway. Or not even do Broadway or off Broadway. Do nothing. But if you want to succeed, you have to be good at what you do. And if you're good at what you do, you then continue to succeed. So you have to be good. You have to have the ego. You have to want the awards. Why? Because the awards means you're going to get another film and you're probably going to get more money. And money, unfortunately, in the society we live in, equates on how good you are. So if you get $15 million a movie and the guy's getting a million, that means you're much better than he is because of your, your past success. So you have to be good at what you do to succeed to then go on to the next level of what you want to do. Do you agree with that or you don't? I think it's a good rule of thumb, generally true. And of course, there are other factors. The taste of audiences can change with time. And somebody like Gary Cooper, for instance, might not be super popular with modern audiences. And, it, I, and these things are impossible to tell, right? But uh, on the overall, yeah, typically talent will eventually lead to some amount of success. Right. And, and, you, and, and that was a good subject, Gary Cooper, because Boris Karloff always felt that timing and luck were so important in a career. And it really can be any career, but, but in acting especially, he always felt he was on the right corner at the right time. And you're right. Certain actors did very well for their time period. But then as time went by, other people came in and other people came in. And other. So nowadays it's, I don't know, are you familiar with an actor named Paul Muni? I've heard the name. Okay. Well, he was in Scarface, the original Scarface. And some people say he was one of the best actors there ever was, but not too many people knew of him. I would compare Paul Muni to somebody like maybe a Daniel Day-Lewis today. Uh, of course, Lewis became much more famous, but I believe he, he has just announced his retirement. Did you hear that too? No, no, no. Yeah, I heard that his last film was his last film, and he's just not going to act anymore. So another guy is, is Russell Crowe. He's a very good actor. For a while there, he was like everywhere. Then all of a sudden he fell off, and now he's coming back little by little. But I always thought he was a good actor. Do you have any particular actor you like? Oh, my, when I was a kid, my dad and I watched quite a few <coughs> Errol Flynn movies. Okay. So, of course, I'm familiar with Basil Rathbone for that reason. Oh, okay. okay. And with always having to play the villain because <laughs> Flynn took the hero's role. Right, right. 
Well, one of the many things I do besides writing a children's book, I also have a TV show, and it's called Classic Movies with Ron McCluskey. And what I do is I find public domain films, and we air them, and then I have a guest on. And usually as I'm trying to find a guest, I just ask them, you know, who's your favorite actor of that time period, 30s, 40s, and 50s? And then based on that, I'll go and try to find a public domain film. Now, if your audience out there doesn't know what that means, it means a, a, a film will be made by a studio, and they will pay for the rights to show that film. And every time you show that film, you have to pay the studio something. But it lapses, and after 20, 30 years, it's time for renewal. Sometimes they will renew it, sometimes they don't. If they don't renew it, it then falls into what they call public domain. And it means anyone can show it, and it doesn't cost anything. And you'd be surprised on what films are out there that are public domain. Very good films. Um, and it's funny you said Errol Flynn. I've had Errol Flynn's name said to me in the last month three or four times. So I found an Errol Flynn film. It's called The Santa Fe Trail. It's got Olivia de Havilland, who is his co-star in many films, and Ronald Reagan, who eventually became president of the United States. So I'm going to be showing that on my uh, TV show in about two months. Are you familiar with that movie? Yes, I am. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, because a lot of people know he died with his boots on. That was the General Custer uh, story. And uh, Captain Blood, which he did as well, which was a pirate movie. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, yeah. So, so interesting about Errol Flynn. Came up several times recently. Well, I suppose that's an example of synchronicity which is a fancy word for coincidence yeah yep, <laughs> um you know and he's one of those guys that was there you know he's got like tyrone power and a few other words guys that were there but they weren't you know like a, a humphrey bogart or a john wayne or james Cagney that everybody you know knew and everybody used to you know go to their films but there were lesser stars films were made differently years ago they used to I think MGM used to put out a movie every week. That means 52 films a year they would produce at one time. Mm. So um, I, I nowadays I like Denzel Washington. I think he's a very good actor. You like him? No. Aside from Glory, I'm not really familiar. Yeah. He's good. But what you said about public domain for films is interesting because it's very different than it were, the way it works for written pieces. Which Correct. Is, yeah. It's good to know, though, because now I know that there's a lot of public domain footage out there for me to use. Right. Exactly. You can use it on your program. Uh, speaking of literature, you know, because of my bars call off, fascination. I'm also, of course, absorbed with the story Frankenstein. And Frankenstein was written in 1818 where there were no copyrights. So that is a public domain story. And anyone can do that. I believe also that it's true with Dracula and Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera. They were all written in the 19th century. And this was long before copyrights with written material. Yeah, and the authors have been dead for much longer than 80 years, although that's right. American law. <laughs> right, well, no, well, what happened, yeah, is, is the author themselves will copyright, but then their family or their estate will take it over. And also, 
keep the copyright going. I think um, who who is the famous writer? Not Sinclair. Um, oh, Catcher in the Rye. Who wrote Catcher in the Rye? Oh, why is that? Oh, J.D. Salinger. There you go, J.D. Salinger. I believe he has written in his will that he never wants a film made of that book. Never. And his family will make sure uh, never will a film be made of that story. Well, good for him. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Catcher in the Rye. It, uh, it might have been shocking for its time, but when I tackled it, I was 12, 13, it just seemed sort of bland. Yeah. Well, you know, if, if you take two other books that were also written around that time period that also were very powerful. But I remember the movie more than the book. And one would be In Cold Blood with Truman Capote. And the other would be um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Again, both books were great, but the films really were very, very powerful. Yeah, I mean... I think with To Kill a Mockingbird, since it's not a really long or super literary book, it's easily adapted to film, whereas if you take Anna Karina, it, eh, it loses something. Well, you know, the fine thing I find interesting is some people will go back over and over and over again and want to tell the same story. I don't know how many times you can make a movie out of the same subject, but people do. Like, listen, God bless Sylvester Stallone, but enough. I beg you, please, no more Rocky movies. No more Creed movies. Please, it's it's enough already. But that's just me. Well, uh, maybe he tunes in to my podcast. Yeah, well, I hope he's not insulted, but, uh, you know. If, if, if you listen, go buy my book, Sly. It's called We Don't Feel Like It. There's no fighting in it, but I think you're going to like that story and you can give it to your grandkids or great grandkids or whatever. Uh, it just came out about a month ago and um, it's on Amazon. So if anyone wants to buy it, it's a great story about Mickey and Beatty who don't want to go to school and they find out what happens when people don't want to do things. And then they find out that it's not such a good thing. So, uh, but it's a great little book, and I highly recommend it. And it's doing very, very well. I, I think Stallone would enjoy it. The well, book. Somebody, somebody may have to read it to him. <laughs> now, Adam, cut it out. Why did you laugh at that? That's terrible. The terrible thing I said. Yeah. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. Not only. Can he read, but he can write. I mean, he wrote Rocky. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, and he was nominated for an Oscar. In fact, I think he could have won. The, did he win the Oscar for writing? I think he did. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think that uh, the book has come at a good time because it sort of feels like collectively Western civilization is sort of questioning the concept of duty right and 
it kind of makes a case for Kantian ethics, for the categorical imperative that we all should act in a way that would be okay if it was made a universal law. So we all have to do what we're supposed to do, or else everything falls apart. There you go. That that was very uh, very in depth there, Adam. I like that. Yeah, we can bring in some Kantian scholars and have a three and a half hour discussion. I don't know if I could last three and a half hours, but uh, I'm good for five minutes for sure. <laughs> What exactly inspired the book? Have you did you think about becoming a children's author at any point in the past, or was it just a spur of the moment thing? Well, no, it's it's. I have ideas constantly. Um, I used to say almost once a day, but let's say once a week. I think it's something, and I'm just a creative person, so. You know, I always had this story in my head, and with the internet, I was able to try to find a publisher. So it took a while, but I found one. Then my next step was to find an illustrator. I had to find that, and I found um, a woman who um, I've yet to meet, which <laughs> has all been done online. Uh, and she started in January, and what I did is I sent her sketches of every single page that I wanted, and she did the drawings herself. It's 36 pages in drawings, but then 36 pages of text that makes about a 75, 76 page book. But um, I, I'm just glad I did it. I'm, I'm very proud that I accomplished something that I wanted to do. It's now out there and hopefully people will like it, enjoy it. I already have a sequel in mind. So I want to take these characters to another story. But again, we'll see how this first book does and we'll see from there. Yeah, it's, it's always like getting a burden off your shoulders, even though that's the mo not the most poetic way to put it, when you finish something creative. Right. And again, and, and of course, the, res uh, the response to the feedback is really important, too, that, uh, you know, you can have people say they really like it. And the thing about a children's book, I mean, a children's book can go almost anywhere. I mean, you know, you can think about it just as a children's book, but then you can contact schools, you can contact the libraries, and then there are book fairs, and there are book readings, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it really can affect uh, a child as they're growing up. I, I wrote it specifically for an adult or an older child to read to a younger child. And then as they get older, to read it themselves. So, um, Hopefully that's what will happen. And then again, if this first book does well, which we'll know in a couple months when all the numbers come in, then we'll start writing the sequel and see how well that does. Have you ever written anything? I wrote two novels that did not so well, but that was mostly failure on my part to promote them and to write something that was somewhat accessible. <laughs> but it's not really about the money because I always make sure to have a few paying jobs. What's important is getting it out there and learning from your mistakes. 
Right. But this sort of goes back to what you were saying about uh, actors and actresses doing it for the money versus for the sheer enjoyment. Right. I definitely believe that a fair chunk of humanity, maybe the better portion of humanity, has the need to do something creative, to check something off their bucket list. So it it might turn into a purely financial endeavor, but at some point it probably started as something pure. Well, I, I used to joke and tell people that, uh, you know, nowadays you interview an actor, let's say Robert Duvall, and, you know, he's doing a movie about a priest helping poor kids in a slum area and they'll say, you know, why, why did you take this movie? Well, I was always troubled when I saw poor kids in the neighborhoods when I was young and there's this one priest and I went and I studied for months to be a priest and I went and I made this movie and I really think it's got a good message. Now, 50 years ago, you asked Clark Gable, why did you take this movie about being a priest in a poor slum? He says, well, I had a three picture deal and this was my last movie. Well, that might just be an uptick in virtue signaling. You know, it's, uh, we all have to either do something for good or pretend like we're doing something for good. All right, Adam. Well, I've had a great time talking about my book. Did I tell you the book here? Did I show you? <laughs> I don't feel like it. Top of my head here. It's under my chin. And it's on Amazon. And you... Yes, you, Adam, can buy the book if you want. We don't feel like it, and uh, buy it for all your friends and family. Yes, yes, I can. And I may.